Uh, today we continue our series in Ecclesiastes, and uh, the teaching text this morning is uh, verse 12 of chapter 1 through 2.11. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by, by, by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart had experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to no wisdom and no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, and my heart uh, still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself, and I made gardens and parks, and I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, as uh, indicated, my name is Thomas. Uh, and if you've um, arrived here in the last three or four months, um, believe it or not, I'm one of the elders here. Um, that might be surprising because I haven't been around the stage. I haven't been um, particularly, I haven't been involved in serving um, for a little while. I've been kind of sitting, holding my baby. Um, and that's because about three or four months ago, I had a moment where I realized um, I was like a spring that had been maybe, you know, whenever a spring gets like stretched too far and it kind of loses some of its springiness. I, I felt like that spring for a while. Um, I was nowhere near breakdown. I was nowhere near that, but I was certainly on that path. And what happened was a moment of realization was that I was overstretching. Um, we have four elders in this church, um, three of whom are staff members, and the trap that I fell into was in thinking that the role of an elder was actually playing the role of a voluntary staff member. Um, it's not. You all know that. I, like, I know that somewhere in my mind. I just wasn't living that. Um, so... Um, this last three, four months has been so um, lovely to sit back and watch and to receive. Um, 
and receive, I have. Um, it's also, it is interesting, I think this is one of the first times that I've preached whenever um, all three of the other elders have been in the room. Um, usually I preach heresy up here whenever they're away traveling. I am the B team. <laughs> um, so this is, this is actually a lovely moment where I get to say um, to you three, thank you. Um, thank you for taking the moment to say, yes, go and rest. Um, that's been so good for my soul. You've loved me, you've cared for me, and I feel that. My family has felt that, so thank you. Um, wow, that's got to be like a record of like 30 seconds and like starting to get a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. Um, also, thank you to RMC, has been incredibly supportive. They've loved us, they've cared for us in very practical ways, and we're just so grateful um, for this church and for how you guys love us and care for us. I see you all, I'm trying to make eye contact with everyone who is there. You're all scattered around you. So, thank you, thank you. Was that me? Am I making that racket? Is it hitting me? Move the Madonna mic. I'm just so excited after watching Eurovision. <laughs> I think Austria were robbed. Just saying. All right, let's get into this, uh, into this book again. So, um, first of all, um, I, let, let me say this. I am, I am actually really glad you're here. I'm not going to lie to you. After you read Ecclesiastes, I had this vision running through my mind all week long, particularly last night of like half of you just like like stretched out on your couch, like haven't changed in a way, covered in Dorito crumbs and, and beer cans screaming at Eurovision. It doesn't matter. It's all meaningless. So I'm really glad that you've managed to put yourselves together and got washed and dressed and you're here and you look lovely. So this book is fun. It's so peculiar. It's so different. Um, as, as we found out last week, it's the second book in the Bible's wisdom literature. The first is Proverbs, which we covered uh, two, two summers ago uh, in this, our first summer in this building. We did that book. Can I have a quick show of hands? Just out of my curiosity more than anything, can I have a quick show of hands? Who was here for that sermon? Put your hands up if you were here for any part of that sermon. Less than half. That's remarkable. Maybe in two years' time, we'll complete the trilogy. We'll do Job. Um, so all y'all in here can put your hands up in two years' time. Um, Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon, although that's maybe not said explicitly, as we read this book, as we cross-reference it with other stuff in the Bible, that's certainly the, the person that comes to mind, and it's who we should think of as we're reading these words. Um, whenever Solomon um, got the throne, he was the third uh, king of Israel after Saul and David. Um, the Lord came to Solomon and asked, Solomon, what do you want? Uh, Solomon's response was, I want wisdom. And um, the Lord said, right, well, I'll give you wisdom since you asked for it, but I'm going to give you all that other stuff that you haven't asked for as well. So we see this, this man of incredible possession, of incredible wealth, but incredible knowledge. Um, and he goes on this quest, in this, and this book is showing us his quest to discover the meaning of life. What is it all about? Um, this book, which kind of means teacher or gatherer or assembler, he's, it's like he's gathered us all together and is saying, I think I figured it out. I think I know what this is all about. But to get there, I'm going to need to deconstruct some stuff for you. So we get this sharply, like almost nihilistic streak where the, the teacher is just pummeling everything that we take for granted in our worlds, everything that we tend to find meaning and value in. And so one word that we're going to deal a lot with here, which um, you heard was vanity, or in some of your translations it might say meaningless, is this word hevel. Anywhere you see the word vanity or meaningless, it's this word hevel. And, and the, the, the literal meaning is like mist or vapor. Do you remember the illustration from last week where we got a match and we light it? And the little moment where you blow it out, 
all y'all in the first row for you can see that, but that smoke, that vapor, that is a very helpful image to keep in your mind. That little, that ephemeralness, that fleetingness that can't be grasped, the mist, the vapor, that is this idea of the word hevel. Can you say the word hevel? Let me hear you. Hevel. Hevel. Good. You're on your way to becoming fluent Jewish speakers, fluent in the, word, in the language of Hebrew. Okay. So um, that is what we're dealing with in here. And in this that we've, in the passage that we've looked at, that we've read this morning, it is Solomon's quest to find meaning and significance in a couple of different places. And so the rest of the preacher is going to go into two parts. The first part, he's um, using his mind. He's trying to know all things. And the second part, uh, he is going after uh, some other stuff. He's going after pleasures. So let's um, start with intellectualism. So um, keep your Bibles open. We'll be just working through pretty much verse by verse. So verse 12, uh, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So we find out straight away what Solomon's after. I applied my heart to seek and search out, or if you're in the NIV, it says, I applied my mind to study and explore. Um, heart, mind, the, the gist is this. It's not literally the, the organ that's pumping blood around your body. It's like, it's like the control center of your being, your, your like decision-making process. That's the thing that's driving him here. It's, the point is that it, this isn't like a dabble. This isn't just like a, uh, like, a, like a casual Wikipedia binge. This is like a serious pursuit. And just so that we're aware of how serious a pursuit is, whenever Solomon applies his mind, we read other parts of the Bible. Um, so 1 Kings 4, Chris, I think I've got the, the verse up there. 1 Kings 4, 29. This is the scope of Solomon's mind. God gives Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than He-Man, he <laughs> sweet, He-Man's in the Bible, wiser than He-Man, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. Those five were really good. He wants you to know that. It's in the Bible. He didn't write 1,000 songs. It's 1,005. His last five were the pinnacle. He spoke about plant life from the cedar, cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows on the walls. He spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. This is no dabble. This is a serious pursuit. And what's his mind after? It says in the second half of 13, to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So just about everything, almost. Um, and this is where we spent a lot of our, our, our uh, time in, in last week. Solomon's perspective is incredibly limited. It's under the sun. And, and with that phrase, the image that it should conjure is that he is looking at everything apart from God. Um, if, if you were here in, um, with us two summers ago when we did Proverbs, or if um, you know Proverbs in any way, what does Proverbs say is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. But that's not where Solomon's starting. God gave Solomon this incredible wisdom, and according to God's good purposes, he allowed Solomon to run wild with it, even though it was away from God himself. But this wisdom was, was distorted. It was, 
it was, it was self-absorbed. Just like cast your eye through the part that we read and count how many times it says, I, I, the preacher, I applied, I applied my heart. I have seen everything. I said in my heart, I have acquired, I, I, I. It's so self-absorbed and that's not the fear of the Lord. Um, this might strike an echo of an ancient sin. If you think of Genesis, Eve, when she's talking to the serpent, says, God told us not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden or we would die. And the serpent says, surely you won't die. God knows your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan convinced Eve that knowing would make her godlike. And that comes, it's so tragically how, come, how that comes just a few short verses after we find out how, how humans were made in the image of God already godlike in that sense. We carry the divine image of God. God put his name to that. He said it was good. So Eve thought knowing would give her ultimate meaning, ultimate power, satisfaction. And that's the same quest that Solomon's on, isn't it? He, he doesn't just want to know God. He wants to know what God knows apart from God. But no human being is able to possess the knowledge, the wisdom that determines the world's events. And we see glimpses of that here. It's why Solomon says, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. Or in the, in, in the ESV, it is unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. So we, we have that desire to know, don't we? We have a searching soul and inquisitive minds. We have a thirsty heart, but detached from God, that appetite will never lead to satisfaction. It is a heavy burden. It is difficult. It's, the translation I read this week, it's almost like it's, it's, it's evil. It's so difficult. And this is maybe a glimpse into Solomon's frustration. He's at a dead end. He's feeling the curse of sin that he's inherited from Eve and Adam. This is the consequences of his rebellion, all without God. In verse 14, he says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, hevel, and a striving after the wind. Solomon's looking at all the things under the heaven, all the knowledge, all the wisdom, and he's like trying to put it together into some sort of coherent whole, and he's like, I just, I just can't make it fit together. It just doesn't make sense. I see good things happening to bad people and I see bad things happening to good people and at the end of the day, they all just die. I, it just doesn't, like we have these conundrums and paradoxes and complexities that even Solomon, the greatest mind, had no ability to resolve and so we get this beautiful statement in verse 15. There's another proverb. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. You know it and I know it from our experiences and our attempts to put things in motion in our own life to try and achieve some meaning or satisfaction. Even the practical wisdom of the scriptures, Proverbs, and we talked about this two summers ago, Proverbs in one particular moment in chapter 26 has this paradox. Chapter 26, look in Proverbs and it says, do not speak to a fool or he will scorn the wisdom of your words. Do you know what the next verse says? Speak to a fool or he will be wise in his own eyes. It's, it's like, do you, do you want me to speak to the, do, do I leave the fool alone, or do I, do I speak, what am I supposed to do? 
Some, some, some of you have tried this. Some of you have lived a life of faith. You've done everything you, you, you were told to do, you were supposed to do, and hasn't gone right. You follow these four easy principles, these seven steps to freedom, these three keys to success, and you might have got so far, but ultimately you, it didn't pay out, did it? You, the 30-day challenge comes and goes, and you're not that much different. You're not that much happier. It's all hevel, a chasing after the wind. It doesn't make sense. Even if we tiptoe into the world of science, and I say tiptoe, please don't like rage at me if I burn this totally wrong. <laughs> Even science comes up with stuff like a new theory of how the world works, quantum theory, right? And do you know what they say? Um, we've realized that for all this to work, we probably need more dimensions or like Okay, I can like just about get my head around when time is like a fourth one. So how many are you thinking? Maybe 11. Yeah, 11. Are you kidding me? Okay, what about this? Uh, light, okay. Scientists say we've, like, we've been observing light. It seems to behave like both a particle and a wave. I don't, I just don't, I, I mean, I nodded my head in physics class. I don't have a clue. The only way quantum physics can work, I read this just the other day, Stephen Hawking, in one of his last papers that was published um, just recently, posthumously, uh, the only way quantum physics works is if there are possibly other universes, like an infinite number. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be accounted. If I just accumulate this wisdom, Solomon's like, if, if I just clear this hurdle, if I just figure out this synthesis to have all things of it all, a grand theory, I will be able to plumb the depths of satisfaction. I will be happy, and at the very least, I'll be able to pay my bills. Church, we, we, we wrestle with this, and it is all heaven. You want to know what you'll get if you seek uh, significance in the pursuit of knowledge? Firstly, inevitable futility. You don't believe me? Come to my office tomorrow. I'm a PhD student at Queen's. Come to my office tomorrow. Let me introduce you to some of the most dissatisfied, disillusioned, underpaid, and overworked people in society, university faculty. Just like the last, they spent like the last six weeks striking to get better pensions. They are incredibly intelligent. I literally spend my days trying to glean pearls of wisdom from them, but they are not satisfied in their knowledge. For those of you who are old enough to remember life before smartphones, are you more satisfied now that you have one? Yeah, literally, the, 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 the world's knowledge at your fingertips, are you happier? Nah. I'm not saying education is bad, by the way. It's good, but it's nothing without God. It's heavy, it's fleeting, it's ephemeral. The other thing you get if you seek significance in the pursuit of knowledge, inescapable agony. Look at verse, team, verse, uh, verse 17. Uh, and I applied my mind to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this is also a striving after the end. So he's tried wisdom. Then he's even like critiqued wisdom to see, actually, am I using like the wrong thing to work out the meaning of life? So he tries like madness and folly. That didn't work, obviously. Uh, so verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. In March, 14th of March, 2004, Daniel Tammet broke the record for citing pi from memory. 
Remember your math classes? Pi is like something to do with like a circle's no, area, right? Area of a circle? It's some to do with circles, right? Um, put up the next slide, please, Chris. Um, for five hours and nine minutes, Daniel Tammet recited 22,514 digits of pi. So pi starts off at 3.14, right? One four, that's the first one there. Up there, that's 8, 16, 24, 30. That's 320. So Daniel Tammet, from memory, did that plus another 70 slides of that perfectly without error for five hours and 29 minutes. Um, Daniel has Asperger's syndrome and has this extraordinary capacity to learn, particularly things regarding numbers and languages. He learned Icelandic in a week. Um, such brilliance has its drawbacks, as Solomon has found, with much... Uh, in much wisdom is much vexation. He increases in knowledge, increases in sorrow. This is, a, this is a quote from Daniel's memoir. I still vividly remember the experience I had as a teenager lying on the floor of my room, staring up at the ceiling. I was trying to picture the universe in my head to have a concrete understanding of what everything was. In my mind, I traveled to the edges of existence and I looked over them, wondering what I could find. In that instant, I felt really unwell and could feel my heart beating inside me because for the first time I had realized that thought and logic had limits and could only take a person so far. This realization frightened me and took me a long time to come to terms with it. So in verse 18, we have brilliant Solomon flat on his back, staring at the ceiling, frightened, unnerved at the limits It's his first realization that in attempting to live a meaningful life without God under the sun, it's his first realization that it's unattainable. Now, last week we touched on the, on the fact that one day everything will be straight, and we, we see glimpses of that in, in the book of Isaiah, where he, God says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. One day everything will add up. One day all of our knowledge will be free from sorrow and vexation and anguish and grief. But to do that, we need to stop being wise in the eyes of those who live under the sun and start being a fool, according to the Bible, in the eyes of those who live under the sun. You heard. In 1 Corinthians, um, it says this. Chris, flick up this slide there. 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 18 to 25. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has, God not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. There is no significance and value, ultimate significance and value, to be found in knowledge. Ecclesiastes drives us to Jesus. We say one thing a lot here, that our faith is a considered one, right? We, we, we ought to think of it. We ought to be able to process it with our minds, absolutely. 
But that's not all. That's not the entirety of our faith, is it? Jesus didn't say to, to love him, to love God with all of our minds. Full stop. No. If that was the case, we'd be, in the words of James Smith, brains on a stick, and God would be happy with that. But he didn't create us that way, did he? He created us with bodies. We're physical. Our faith is not all about knowing. It's, it's not just about gaining knowledge, about giving intellectual assent to something, about saying, yes, I agree with that. It's about the bodily experience of living that out, of, of bodily obedience, of obedience with all parts of our life. It's where the Psalms, we read in the Psalms, um, for us to taste and see that the Lord is good, not to think and understand that the Lord is good, although that's a part of it, but to taste and see. Solomon tried to find meaning and understanding and, and satisfaction in his mind. It didn't work, okay? So he tried more. He moved from applying his mind uh, and his heart to knowing stuff to applying his mind and heart to, to doing stuff. Both things come from the same place. Both come from the heart, and that's important to remember. We'll touch on that later, okay? So part two, he's tried his mind. Now he's going to try some other stuff. Uh, and the, 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 the subtitle in my Bible here says, The Vanity of Self-Indulgent Pleasure. Verse one, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. That's what he said to his heart. Uh, What's good, but behold, that also proved to be Vanity. This also was vanity, heavy, meaningless. And so, like right off the bat, we know that Solomon's quest for meaning and pleasure doesn't add up. Solomon gives us a list of his hedonistic experiments from, from verses 3 to 9. It's basically an itinerary. And then from 10 and 11, he evaluates them. So let's just like skip through them here. Verse 3 first stop, booze. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I, so Solomon's tried literally elevating his soul with the consumption of wine. He embraced folly. His mind still guiding him, so he drank, but not, to, not so much that he was intoxicated and insane. His mind still able to guide him. He had enough to act stupid. It's not like a, like a nice wine with a steak, nor is it rip-roaring plastered. It's enough for him to be self-medicating. He's trying to lift his soul out of darkness, and of course, it's all hevel. There must be something else. Verses four to six from alcohol, he moves on to creativity and projects. I undertook great projects. Literally, I enlarged the work of my hands. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted them and all kinds of fruit trees. And I made myself pools from which uh, to water the forest of growing trees. Um, I'm, I, I can't um, speak for the women in the room, but guys, you all have that one guy in your life who's like really good at like everything, you know, like can like build houses and like fix cars and like knows all the words to like every song or like, like, or, like knows words like Shakespeare and stuff and like you just being around him kind of like emasculates you a little bit and you're like, I don't feel quite as manly, so I'm not going to spend any more time. If you all have that kind of person, right? Um, Solomon's like that guy times a thousand. Just look at the diversity of what he built. In 1 Kings 7, read, he spent 13 years designing his house. Either he's a perfectionist or else he's got a really big house. I don't know. Look, he planted vineyards for wine. He planted gardens. He created parks, uh, he, which is incredibly impressive because do you know where in the world we're dealing with here? 
Israel. Right, and you know what? There's like not a ton of there that there is here. Water. And that's what gardens and vineyards need. So, oh, yeah, no, it's okay. I, I built reservoirs. He built reservoirs. That's, you know, fine, okay. Uh, like, omnicompetent man can build everything. <laughs> we were around, uh, on Wednesday night, we were our MC gathered at, um, at Andy and Catherine's house, and Andy was showing me his back garden and this, like, sweet bench that he's, like, trying to build into his garden wall. And he's, like, using all these words, and they're just flying over my, my head. I don't have a clue how to, like, I don't have a clue how to do any of that stuff, um, I felt inferior, I'm not going to lie. I felt, inco- I felt incompetent. But, mate, you're not even building a reservoir, all right? You build a reservoir, man, and then we can talk. <laughs> um, so it's not just the diversity of everything he's building. It's like the scope, all of those things, that list, they're all in the plural. I made great works, houses, vineyards, gardens, and parks. It's all multiple, all plural. But Why? Again, we look at his motivation and just look at how many times he says, I. It's all about himself. I built houses and vineyards for myself. I made, I made these things for myself. I, I made for myself reservoirs. <laughs> these weren't philanthropic public works. These were self-indulgent, all for himself to make himself feel better. All of it is heavy. And again, you might pick up on this kind of Hark back to, to Genesis, to the Garden of Eden here, where it sounds like he's trying to recreate that, doesn't it? Just like look at the things he's trying to build. He's trying to recreate Eden, except this time without any God, a godless Eden with no forbidden fruits. And in true Eden style, a place is made, now it needs to be populated, Right? So verse 7, people, I bought male and female slaves and had, uh, uh, sorry, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. So like the sheer size of his property demanded a workforce, but also slaves just to wait upon his every whim. And his, like his herds and his sheep and his goats, 1 Kings uh, 4.22, I'm not sure, do I have that one, Chris? Yeah, uh, oh no, that's the next one. 1 Kings 4.22 talks about how his daily provisions include five metric tons of flour. Several thousand people every day he's feeding. That doesn't drop out of the sky. There's a price tag, but that's not a problem. But it's all hevel. How's he paying for it? Verse 8. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Let's just leave it there. That's where this verse comes in. Jump ahead to again, Chris, uh, 1 Kings 10, 14. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. That's 23 metric tons um, per year, Uh, not including the revenues from merchants and traders from all the Arabian kings and governors of the territories. Skip forward in that chapter uh, to, to verse 23, and it says, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world saw audience with Solomon to hear his wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, horses and mules. And what did he do with that weight? What did he do with that weight of gold? He acquired singers. Ever feel good because you've like 
got like a really on point Spotify playlist for that little soiree you're having in that barbecue? All right. <laughs> Every like maybe to more, some of the students in the room ever felt like really cool because like you went to a party and there was a band playing like in the house. It's pretty cool. Solomon owned that band, unlike every other band you've ever heard of. That 1,005 songs that he wrote, he now got to hear them in surround sound from 700 of the best performers in the land. But did it make a difference? Music takes you away and distracts you. It lifts your spirits, but the song ends. The album ends. You open your eyes, and it's all heaven. The beauty didn't drown out the melancholy from his heart and his mind. The best entertainment, the most gold, but this is the problem with gold, it, it's cold. It can't embrace you. It can't make love to you. So Solomon goes there. So with gold he acquires, this is in, uh, this is in verse the end of the tail end of verse 8. I, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You want to talk about wisdom or the lack thereof? Old Solomon here never learned to swipe left. I think that's right. I totally stole that joke, by the way, off from our MC on Wednesday night. Um, it's safe to say Solomon is not looking for meaningful relationships and conversations. He's looking to exhaust himself. He has more sex than he knows what to do with. Verse 10, it says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. How startling is that? Whenever, hopefully by now a picture has been painted of how much this guy has. So when he says, I desire myself, I refuse myself nothing, it starts to feel sinister. But all of it was heavy. We, like, we roll our eyes, a thousand sexual partners, all right, okay, cool, yeah, we're not that stupid, are we? We've moved on from that, right? We don't concern our minds with such foolish pursuits. Yeah, okay. Over 150 million copies of Fifty Shades sold around the world. 150 million. That every one of you has access to an industry that earns $100 billion a year. Providing people with endless partners, a harem for the imagination, if you will. And then we move on to his evaluation. I deny myself nothing my eyes desired. I refuse my heart no pleasure. Solomon's saying, I looked at my experiences. I surveyed my things, my accumulated stuff. I looked at all the drinking and all the partying and all the laughing. I looked at what I created, my vineyards, my gardens, my reservoirs. I looked at my palaces, my people, my wives, my concubines. I looked at my singers. Yet when I surveyed everything, it was all hevel. It was a chasing after the wind. It was nothing. Nothing was gained under the sun. It was all heaven. So what's the issue here? What do we take from this? Church, we are just like Solomon, who in turn is just like Adam and Eve. 
we've inherited their disease. And one way of putting that is this. We, th- we think we need one more tree than we already have. There's just one more. If I just had just that tree, one more tree than we already have. Everything we see, we want. I saw that embodied more than I have in a long time at my nephew's third birthday party yesterday. He like gets a toy from his, from his like aunt and uncle and he like rips it open. It's like, this is amazing. This is gonna satisfy my heart's desire. He actually said, no, he didn't say that. He's like, this is, this is it. This is the key. And he runs around the garden with it and he's like jumping over like his other toys. He's jumping off fences and like running through the house. And then his granny comes in with another present and it lands on the floor, and he tears it open, and it's the same thing, and, or like not the same present, it's like the same attitude again. He opens it, he's like, yes, this is it, this is what my heart's been waiting for, I am not satisfied. And then someone takes his like, first toy, and then he loses his mind because he's got this toy, but that's not enough because he wants to have that toy, and we laugh as adults, don't we? We laugh like, oh, children, we're no better. We're no better. We just internalize our frustrations. We have a tantrum in the back room or maybe at best it's in here. Like, I really, really want that. I really want that. We try to fill our lives with hevel. There's this belief that goes around, raging around our souls, and it goes unchecked that if somehow if we just get this next thing, this next tree, then, then that will be the thing that finally satisfies us. So the question is this, how much of that will make that feeling go away? We have this sense of, this very book says it in a couple of chapters time, that we have, eternity is set in our hearts. We have this, this understanding, this longing for something, this, this desire for meaning and for significance. But my goodness, how much we fill it with the wrong stuff. So what's your thing? That's like the most theological heck of it. What's your thing? If I just buy that, that one t-shirt, just, just that pair of shoes, if I, if I get that outfit, that'll be it. I'll be, I'll be done. Um, uh, I'll tell you what, actually, no, it's if I just get the iPhone 10 and an Apple Watch um, and maybe that new game for you know, that new console, and then, yeah, that'll be it. That, that's it. Oh, and no, I actually know what it is. If, if, I just got, if I just got to 1,000 followers, if I just got to, to, to 5,000 followers, if my likes were like, if I was getting like over like 100 every time, yeah, that's, if my blog gets X amount of hits, that's the one, yeah, that'll do it. If I just finish uni, if I just get that internship, you know, that one, you know, the really cool one, that really cool organization, that startup, if I just got a job there, if I just got that promotion or secured that client or finished that project or bought that house and I sold this house but buy that house with that really nice car, if I just have, that, if I just have this one more drink, just that one more, If I, okay, this, if I just have this last bit of, this last substance, that last hit. Oh, if, if, I think, I think the next chase, my next romantic endeavor, that's the one, you know, it's the thrill of the chase that you love, you know, that's, if I just, one more of those, then I'll be done, yeah, that'll be me. Okay, just, just one more tender date, just one more sexual experience. Just one more, just just one more porn video, just one, then I'll be happy. 
if I, if I just lose five more kilos, if I just get that, that, that product, oh, that's, that's the one that will make me look best. What about money? If, like, let's, just, let's just put a price on it. Is it 50 quid? Is that, will that do? 500? Or like, is it, is it bigger than that? Well, just put a price on it. What is it? Last, last little thing. Uh, it's the next church. That's the one. It's the next church. That's, that's going to be the one that makes me happy. It'll be, it'll be perfect. The people there, they won't ask me hard questions. They, they, they won't be like poking at my life. They, I'll not have any problems with that church. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be just right. I'll be, I'll be happy there. Everyone there is beautiful. Yeah, they'll be my friends. 17th time lucky, huh? Yeah. We all do it. I could spend an hour going through everything and we all do it. The reality is that the root of those self-destructive behaviors are driven by the lie that Solomon has put on trial here. The lie that deep down we believe that just one more tree will make it go away. We'll be satisfied. And church, let me tell you, here's the takeaway. It's not that the hevel is bad inherently. It's just that it's hevel. The hevel isn't bad, it's just hevel. It's how we treat it that's the problem. It's how Solomon treated it was the problem. And, and this, is, this is the thing, we, we need a right understanding of hevel. We need to realize hevel for what it is. We need a right ordering of it in our lives. We need to know where it's meant to be prioritized in our lives and then live by that reordering. Christianity never denies what is true, whether experienced in the context of righteousness or sinfulness. It doesn't deny pleasure's existence. It warns, though, by trying to get more out of pleasure than it can give. That's where Solomon went wrong. He was attempting to find ultimate meaning and significance in pleasures under the sun, apart from God. And the teacher, I think the teacher gets this to some degree. Just skip ahead a couple of verses. Verse 24, apologies if I'm stealing like part of your preach from a couple of weeks down, but verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Excuse me. So literally, it's, this is saying there is no good in a man or a woman to be able to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his labor. There's nothing inherent in us that gives us the ability to enjoy the things around us, but to the one who pleases God. It's like there's two things here. There's, like, there's the hevel, there's the stuff of life, okay? There's all of it, and we all have it, and it's all around us. And then there's a second thing of the gift of God to be able to enjoy it in some way, with a different attitude, with a right understanding. And so that presents us two different ways to approach the hevel. What I've just talked about we'll call hevel first, Okay? Um, the other way to approach it is kingdom first. 
Let's flick open to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, from verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye, of the, lamp of, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be health, will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. That's just like, a, like an, an old way of saying having a bad eye or having a health. Having a bad eye was having a greedy eye. That was like saying you coveted basically everything that you saw. So think of that whenever you read that. Um, if the light, if then the light is, uh, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the, to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or uh, the word there is typically is, is, is mammon, which is like the New Testament way of saying um, incredible greed. So again, we, we see what's going on here. Um, it's not necessarily just money, it's possessions, it's uh, wealth, it's, it's, yeah. So verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Oh man, how much does our society need to hear that? What you will eat or, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single R to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, ach Solomon, here he is. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Or another translation, each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen? Is that not true? Jesus gets what Solomon is hinting at. Jesus just brings it out into full daylight for us. He invites us into a way of living in the heaven that changes our relationship with it. We find deep joy in the person of Jesus. So a few notes here just as we come into land. This command in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God. We get pretty awkward whenever we ask people to do stuff. Certainly I do. It's like, would you mind, if you had like a minute, can you, like, if, you know, if, you, if you're free, would you mind helping me do this? And then like, you give like the no for them straight away. It's like, you're probably too busy. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's cool. You know, you don't want to do that anyway because you hate me. Okay, I'm gone. Bye. Jesus isn't ambiguous. Ambiguous. It's a command. 
So if you're a follower of Jesus, or what the New Testament calls a, a disciple, our job is, is, is in Jesus. As we're in Jesus, we're to become more like him, more Christ-like, um, and participating in the job that he's doing on earth, which is seeing the Father's kingdom extend across to the, to the ends of the earth. That's our job. That's the command. Get after it. What are you waiting for? And so then, on the other hand, not paying attention to that command is, is sinful. There's, there's no way around this. It's, it's not that we're saying it's a bad idea. It's like, uh, so, uh, sorry, back to Matthew 6. It's, it's not saying that you, um, it's a bad idea to serve God and money and that it's like, it's, it's tricky and you'll find it difficult. No, it's saying it's impossible. It's, we're dealing with absolutes. It's impossible. Either, we are, either our affections are rightly ordered or they're not. And so the word idolatry, this is the biblical word for having a, like a, the wrong relationship to the hevel. It's for making anything else but God the center of our beings. And if we know anything from idolatry, reading the Old Testament, it is a pretty quick way to get to destruction. Um, so we, we try to get around it. It's like we say yes to Jesus with one hand, and we say yes, Jesus, to, to who you are, to what you say, to your plans for my life, to everything that, that's good that I like, but please, in this hand, we're like holding it behind our back, like please don't take my social media feed off me, please. I've got like, I've just hit like a really good, like my profile is just amazing at the minute. I've got this really good filter that I'm working with and it's just making everything like just ping and like I'm hitting like thousands of likes. Just please don't take that profile off me, Jesus, please. Or it's like something else. It's like we, so often we have like a little bit of hevel just <clears throat> clinging to it. We can't do both that. It's not, it's not both that. It's either or in this instant church. So... Just for a moment, if you also if you leave the command thing aside, which you can't really do because not doing it is sinful, but just for a moment, just this is just a better way to live. Just look at how many times Jesus says, Do not be anxious, do not three times in this one little passage alone, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. It's almost like following the way of Jesus will lead to our flourishing. What are the chances that we'll actually become like a healthier human by living the way that Jesus intends us to live? Who'd have thought? So the question, what is your thing? What's the little bit of hevel you're clinging to? That's your homework for this week, church. Talk about that in your MCs this week. Talk about it with your core. Be honest. Like, I dare you to share the most, like, the most tightly held part, the bit that you don't like to tell anybody because it's a little bit embarrassing. Share that. You will never know ultimate satisfaction if you seek it in any penultimate pleasure. However intrinsically good or noble it might be, if it's anything less than the living God himself, it's pointless. Jesus knew this. Just look at the story of Jesus being tempted. He, Satan brings him up to the high mountains, to the highest mountain, and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. He shows him everything and says, worship me and I'll give it all to you. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and worship him only. Every pleasure short of God under the sun. But Jesus chose the Father. Jesus chose the way of the cross that the Father had marked out for him. 
Because God is the pleasure to be prized above all. More satisfying than the finest food and wine and the best clothes. More satisfying than money and sex and recreation and accomplishments and entertainment. All those things provide pleasure. Enjoy them, but know that they are penultimate at best. They are hevel. Without God, they are broken cisterns that can't hold water. The pleasure that God gives is a living water that quenches your thirst forever. A spring to well up, a spring that wells up in which you find eternal pleasures. And that's only available in Jesus Christ. But it's made available to everyone. Jesus asks, what good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? So what do you do whenever all you've ever wanted isn't enough? Drink from the fountain and your thirst will be quenched in a way that nobody else can. Eat the food of eternal life. Let Jesus become the satisfaction, the deepest part of our soul, so that we become disabused of the notion that one more thing will fix it. We take communion as a representation of that satisfaction and meaning. We remind ourselves, yes, yeah, this is where my meaning is. This is where my satisfaction is. This is where my purpose is in Jesus and in nothing else. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Um, I'm going to invite you to stand, actually, um, and just ask you to have a moment in quietness. Let's just prepare our hearts as we come to communion. The body, the, the, the bread represents Christ's body that was ripped and torn and crushed and broken for you in the thick of your idolatry while you were far from him. The wine, Christ's blood, which was shed on the cross while you were dead in your sins. Christ shed his blood for you. Just as we prepare our hearts to come to communion, let's just take a moment and listen to the Spirit. What's the thing? Be honest with yourself. What's the thing? Scripture calls us to search our hearts, so that's what we're doing. As I'm speaking, is there something that's coming to mind? Is there something that's popped to your mind that you know has just become the thing? It's become what you're going after. Know that that thing in and of itself may not be bad. It's just don't let it be the ultimate satisfaction. It's not going to fulfill you like Jesus will. Jesus, um, we come to you, we come to your, we come to the table with thanksgiving. Ah, Lord, we're so thankful that you offer us a way out of it, out of the hell, out of the seemingly meaninglessness of it all. Father, we're sorry for the ways in which we put things above you. We're sorry for the ways that we become idol worshippers. 
sorry for, for, uh, for not putting you first in our lives. Such a simple thing. But so difficult. Thank you that you offer um, satisfaction and meaning. Come to the table, break a bit of bread, dip it in the wine. Thank God for who he is and what he's done in the finished work of the cross. And let go of your idols. Come.